<laughs> welcome to Bonehead. My kid just screamed out, "Welcome to Bonehead." We have a we have a special episode for you today. Our guest is C. Courtney Joiner. Now, if you don't know who that is, you're missing out. Not only is he a prolific screenwriter, he also he has directed directed tra- directed a Transfers Three. He is a writer of novels, some writer. great westerns, mm-hmm. right? He has also written for the Rolling Stones, Voodoo Lounge, yep. uh, for the CD-ROM, if you were there for the game. Um, tune in and hear some great stories about Clint Eastwood, Sam Peckinpah. Oh my God, and some really great stories about Vincent Price as well, and some few others. Tune in. This was one of those, we always say this, I shouldn't say we always say it, but we always say, oh, bonehead! No, this one is really oh. I don't ever remember ever saying, oh, bonehead. That's because you suck at promoting us. <laughs> but we always say, tune in the bonehead. This is a great episode. You didn't go to that, man. And some of them aren't all great. Stephen <laughs> King Part 3 probably isn't a great episode. No. I don't remember it, but I'm assuming yeah. it's not. This, oh, yeah. however, is a great episode, and the reason being is Mr. Joyner. He has some wonderful stories. It's going to be a two-parter. This is the first part, so tune in and enjoy this. And if you're into, for our fans who are really into film history, this is really special. All right, welcome to Boing. Boing. (laughs) Well, we've done 80 of these, and this is how bad I suck. So welcome to Bonehead with our special guest star, C. Courtney Joyner. How are you doing today, sir? Hey, I am doing great. Much better now that I'm on Bonehead. <laughs> I am a fan. This works out fine. Yeah. I swear, people, $20 is $20. If you give somebody $20, <laughs> they will do anything for it. How you do? So we were right before we started. We were talking about your marvelous one sheets and your half sheets that you have b- behind you. Can you talk about them just for a second? The Fu Manchu and the Mysterious Island. Oh sure. Uh, Fu Manchu is uh, William Whitney uh, directed it. It's a Republic serial. Mysterious Island uh, is a half sheet, and then right above it, you can't really see. There's a couple of lobby cards. Uh, the title card for uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth, and then another Mysterious Island with. Uh, uh, Michael Callan, and they're fighting the bee in yeah. the comb. Yes, and uh, so all of that. I I went when I did uh, when I wrote that sequel to uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues last year. I kind of went Jules Verne crazy, and so I've amassed a rather large Jules Verne memorabilia collection. Yeah, because I, I see I saw when you moved a chair. I saw the Nautilus behind you, so that was pretty cool. Absolutely, <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's pretty cool. So basically, what you're telling is you blew the whole check. On buying geeky stuff. Yes, uh, including uh, the very first paperback edition of 20,000 Leagues that was published in the United States. So, yes, 18, whatever it was, 90 or something, yes. Okay, yeah, you really really did blow the whole check on that. (laughs) All right, so for audience to know that you're a writer, you're not not only a novelist, but you're also a screenwriter. So if you don't mind, we usually start from the beginning, like you always should. How did you start? Where did you grow up? Move on from there. So where did you grow up, and how did you end up in in Hollywood? Well, always, of course, uh, very much of that monster kid generation, and my father was a doctor, and... We lived in Philadelphia, and then uh, we moved to Pittsburgh, 
and I met like-minded, you know, movie geeks, but I was one of those, I'm 10 years old. I'm totally about Vampirella. I'm totally about <laughs> Jack Kirby and famous monsters of Filmland yeah. and Aurora model kits and the ghost of Frankenstein and castle films, all that stuff. And so, uh, but when I was in Pittsburgh and I went to, uh, when I was in high school, my, uh, best friend's little brother's best friend was Greg Nicotero. Right. So I was looking at something, and it, so I couldn't believe it when I was actually checking out your IMDb. When oh, we that I was in Dawn of the Dead? Yeah. 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 As, soon as, as soon as Joe told me that you, uh, that, he, that you agreed to do the show, I got on and did research on you, and that was the first thing I saw. I'm like, he was in Dawn of the Dead! Yes, I was. And, going up. and like by that, the way, yeah. right over here, once again, and this is if you're ever in Kentucky, which why wouldn't you be in Lexington <laughs> in the yeah. metropolis that it is, you need to stop by so you can see my Dawn of the Dead signed by most of the cast so you can sign it, my original one oh, sheet, and finish it on out. Uh, man, no, I, I've got to come to Lexington because I'm like the biggest uh, Raylan Givens fanatic of all time. So oh, I've got to come. Yep. Can Bye. we go? Great. So can we criticize? I could. We we could have a whole other show on how we could both because I'm from southeastern Kentucky where Harlan actually is. I grew up mm -hmm. 30 minutes from there. It is not like that at all. It's so clearly Southern California when you're looking at the show. <laughs> well, really, you know, they actually shot the pilot in Pittsburgh. I, I did not know that. I thought it was West Virginia, but I did not know it was in Pittsburgh. They shot it in Pittsburgh, and they couldn't make a deal with, I guess, the Pennsylvania Film Commission or something. So that's how they ended up shooting the whole thing right down the street for me. It's at, uh, there in uh, Santa Clarita Studios. Yeah, absolutely. But we're looking yep. at it, and, and people around here, a lot of people love the show. I like the show. Yeah. It's just one of those things that drives us crazy. It's like, I'm going to go down, drive down to Harlan. And, I, and you couldn't get there in three hours or two hours, much less than 30 minutes. And Tate's Creek Bridge, which they talk about all throughout the show, does oh, not exist. Especially the way it's shown in the especially show. Especially the way it's shown in the show. But, so yeah. we're done. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay, back, back to Greg Nicotero. <laughs> yes. Who was just this big about that high yeah he was a but his father was a was a was a doctor as well correct yeah he was mm -hmm. right yeah so and well that was the thing is that uh greg uh, as i said i mean he was a kid and after i had been in and uh, rusty cundiff was in the same high school class with me and so we were all kind of running around together uh caitlin clark you know from dragon slayer was yeah. a few years ahead of us and I knew Katie very well. So when, after I did, uh, I was in Dawn of the Dead, we were, I was at a party at the Nicotero's house, and Greg says, oh, come upstairs, see what I'm doing. He was like 14 years old or something, 13 years old. And the work was unbelievable. I mean, these sculptures and everything, he was a kid, and he was doing this just amazing stuff. Yeah. Wow. It, it really was impressive. Right. And now he rules the zombie world. Yes, he does. From the yes, Walking Dead. Yeah, absolutely. So you were in Pittsburgh. How did you get from Pittsburgh to L.A.? Well, I always I always wanted to go to USC uh, just because the focus of the film department seemed to be always be Hollywood movies. And, uh, you know, the at this time, this is the late 70s, the big film departments were USC or NYU. And NYU seemed to me to be a lot more focused on documentaries. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted USC, 
And uh, I got in and ironically couldn't get into the film department. So I got my degree in English. <laughs> you are not the first person to do that either. There has been a ton of you. I was listening to something of Fred Decker who uh, wrote and directed Monster Squad. Now the Creeps couldn't get into the film department either. There's You're not the first or the last. Well, at that time when, when Fred Decker was there and I was there and I was... The the uh, a lot of the film department people were like Kevin Reynolds and people like that. They were all graduate students. We were undergrads. Yeah. So unless you were getting your master's degree, it was a little more difficult to, right. you know, get in there. But I just did what I could and got involved in all these things. But the main thing was I was in Los Angeles, so of course I've been. I was one of these. Let me write letters to Don Siegel and Robert Aldrich and all these people when I was still in Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. And, uh, and they'd always write me back. So I was kind of doing this correspondence with these movie directors and everything before I went to California. When I got there, I, you know, started bugging everybody. Well, let me ask you a question about that. So how did you find their addresses and how, what would you say to them? Because it was a different time then. I don't you uh, you would probably agree uh, somewhere in the last thirty or forty years, directors and somewhat writers became rock stars in some way, depending on specifically depending on the director. I mean, yes. uh, before that, there was what Hitchcock, that people would know as a brand name, and that was about it. Maybe Hitchcock. Who else? Well, you know, this is John about, Ford. Well, that's that's it. I mean, and. Of course, the new guys were, you know, Scorsese and these right, guys right. were on the cover of Time magazine, you know, yeah. in 1973, 74. But those, you know, the 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 guys like John Sturgis and people like that, they weren't celebrities. Nobody even knew what they looked like. Right. So if you wrote to them and care of their office or something, they're always very flattered and very, you know, oh, my gosh, you know about my movies, you're interested. And so they were very, very tolerant of me, especially Don Siegel, who who got who I got to know a little bit. He was a very, very nice man. I sent Robert Aldrich a screenplay and he sent me back this long. I was 16 years old and he sent me back this very long letter about what was wrong with it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's great, though. That That's wonderful advice and it taught you a lot. And that meant that they spent time and time is the most valuable commodity. And, oh, no, the best thing, Don Siegel, I don't know why I, I, you know, I just loved him and I wanted to be. So I wrote to him when I was I was 16 and the letter got to him. I wrote to him for a summer job because he was preparing a movie called I, Tom Horn. Uh huh. And uh, I just seen the shootist, and I was love the shootist. So I write write him this letter, and I get a letter back from him. I still have it; it's fantastic. It's on telephone stationery. So there's, you know, gold point number one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> there's a letter from Don Siegel to a 16 year old kid explaining to him why he can't give me a job on I Tom Horn because Steve McQueen's entourage is so large, <laughs> there would not be a place for anyone else. I swear to God, it is awesome. That is amazing. Now, for our audience who may not know this, Don Siegel directed Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He also directed uh, Dirty Harry. Sorry, there's probably some people out there that don't know this. And he was always known, because he worked forever in B-movies, because he was so efficient, correct? I've heard Correct. Clint Eastwood Absolutely. talk about this. He learned almost everything from directing from Don Siegel and Sergio Leone. That's absolutely right. Well, Unforgiven is direct uh, is dedicated to both of them. Both of them, absolutely. You're absolutely correct. So that's so you got to know him once you got out there to L.A. Yes, I did. I I did a class project uh, 
which was uh, I interviewed uh, Andy Robinson and some people and filmed it on Super 8. Uh-huh. And uh, then I got to know Don a little bit because of that. And when uh, Don was ill, uh, we decided to do a tribute to him at USC. And everybody kind of pooled their resources because they knew Don was sick. Everybody, you wouldn't have believed everybody showed up. Peck and Paul showed up. Clint Eastwood picked me up in his car. Whoa. Whoa. Oh, yes, it's absolutely true. Uh, Sandra Locke was with him. I get the back <laughs> of this black Mercedes, and I love this. There was a crumpled up Diet 7-Up can behind the driver's seat. So I <laughs> had to stop at 7-Eleven or something and on the way down to USC. But it was amazing. Everyone was there to pay tribute to Don. Richard Widmark, it was really something. That's great. And so, I'm totally judging Clint Eastwood on his choice of soda. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he's. I'm sure he's really concerned. I'm sure, I'm sure Mr. Eastwood. Cares my my level of heroism with <laughs> Clint Eastwood just went with. No, no, you see, that's the thing. Sandra Locke was with him. Now it may have been her soda can. Well, that's okay. It doesn't matter. That's so. a great. So, so quit Matt Locke and Clint Eastwood. <laughs> <laughs> Don't pay any attention to us. <laughs> So you're at USC, you finally graduate. So who were some of your peers? I know you mentioned Fred Decker, but who were some of the peers that you were at school with at that time? Well, my closest friends were, well, Jeff Burr and, uh, and I'm going to, we were going to get to Jeff Burr. I met Jeff a few years ago in Indianapolis. It's a long, it's, well, it's a short story, but it was very quick, but yeah, keep going. I'm sorry. Well, that's the thing. Well, Jeff, Jeff and I, of course, immediately, uh, connected. We, um, like the Don Siegel thing, I also did a documentary on Sam Peckinpah. Yes. And I got to know Sam, and uh, bizarrely, just getting on the phone, my cinema teacher was going to be showing the cut of The Wild Bunch that had not been seen since the film debuted at the film festivals. Right. Hmm. I had already interviewed Warren Oates for my thing. I called him on the phone. That you're he just was, making me jealous. Keep going, but you're just yeah, making me so jealous. Yeah, he was going crazy because his wife was getting ready to have a baby, and they were like, "In the R R is today the day? No, it's not the day." So he was like, fell trapped in his house. And I said, "Would you like to come down?" He's like, "Absolutely, I'm coming." So Warren Oates comes, and Peck and Paul was staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel. He was actually in town. He lived in Montana then, and so Sam Sam came. I had a friend go uh, pick him up. And so we marched into my Western film class with Warren Oates and Sam Peckinpah for The Wild Bunch. I actually sat between them for the screening of the movie. Holy. And that was my, yes, that, that was my uh, commentary track before there was one. Wow. Let me ask you a question. What's, what, I, I, I don't want to ask the generic, what was Peckinpah like? So what I'll mm -hmm. ask is, what was the craziest thing he did while you were with him? Was there a good story as far as him? Because we all know of the uh, of the uh, drinking. Okay, yeah, I will, I'll tell you what. He got a little irritated with our uh, waitress at the bar. Uh, I, I can tell you this. We were, uh, uh, we were all sitting up there, and it was fun, because I, I knew Jeff loved him and everything, so Jeff was walking away from the screening, and I'm driving around with Warren Oates. I said, come on with us to the bar. So that was really how Jeff and I first got together. And we had some guys from the USC film department. Kirk Ellis was with us and Paul Sador, who wrote a book about Peck and Paul. And so we all kind of congregated in this bar. And our waitress was kind of hovering over Warren Oates because Stripes had just come out. Oh, <laughs> yeah. 
So she recognized him and was very, and this really kind of pissed Peck and Paul off. And I was sitting right next to Sam. <laughs> and he finally looks up and he goes, you know, she's trying to screw the wrong side of the table. He really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's great. That's great. So you graduated. Was Whisper to a Scream the first project? I know it's your first IMD project, IMD Beach project, but how where, how did you first start making a living once you graduated from school? Well, what happened when I was still at USC, uh, I had an idea for uh, a movie about uh, the character actor Rondo Hatton. Now you've you've lost me. Who Ron? Who okay, had, Rondo Hatton was the disfigured actor who played the creeper in the Sherlock Holmes movies and the yeah, brute yeah, man. Now, and all we that know, stuff. now we know. Sorry, sometimes. Okay. Sometimes you just yeah. Sorry, we lost yeah. you. So and he had quite a tragic life and a very interesting life, and I started doing some research on him, and I was actually and I'm still in college, and I was fishing around at Universal to see if uh, I could find somebody who might be able to direct me in different. Uh, to some sort of connection back in the World War II days. And the head of makeup says, are you doing this project with Virgil Vogel? I said, Virgil Vogel? Mole people, Virgil Vogel? He goes, yeah, this is a TV <laughs> movie, you know. They were actually developing Rondo Hatton's life story really? as a television film. Uh-huh. I was heartbroken, but he, I called Virgil Vogel, who wanted to see my research because I had Rondo Hatton's death certificate. Yeah. He invites me over to, to Universal. I have lunch with him. So by the time I graduated from college, I was kind of his right-hand man, and he had me working on Airwolf and Knight Rider and Miami Vice and all this stuff as I, yeah, when I got out of college. So what were and you? What he, were you he, was, he was directing all those shows, and I was his assistant. So you were his assistant. So you're learning all that stuff on set. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I say assistant, I mean, really kind of the man Friday and we were writing together. And uh, so we in fact, we sold a couple of things. We wrote a spec Airwolf and we sold that. And that, you know, got me into the Writers Guild and everything. Uh -huh. But of course, I'm running around like crazy, you know, asking questions about the land unknown and this island earth and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Audie Murphy and everything and driving everybody nuts. But right. they're all very nice to me and let me go nuts. And uh, in the meantime, Jeff and myself and Darren were all living together, and that was uh, when what uh, started from a whisper to a scream. All right, let's. So, what, who had the genesis of the idea? How did it get started? Can you kind of go from there? We were we're all huge Vincent Price fans, but James here is probably yes, yeah. the craziest Vincent Price out of the three of us. Uh, you know, we love him, but James yeah, and, he's, and he's actually interviewed his daughter. Yeah, so. James has oh. interviewed Victoria more than once. Uh, we've all met Victoria more than once, so yeah. yeah. If you could just kind of go through that with us. Oh, oh, sure. Well, the thing was, Jeff and I tried to get a feature going. Uh, he had worked with Jim Winorski uh, over at Roger Corman's for a while, and I'd written a, a horror script, and we were trying to get that going with Jeff as uh, director. Didn't happen, and Jim was going to try and produce it, and it just didn't come together. So. The idea was right then, you know, that was you could do like, you know, uh, uh, small independent movies through tax loophole money and all that stuff because VHS had exploded. And so everybody is making independent harm, of course, Halloween and all these things. Right. So that was the route we were going to take. But 
aside from the fact we love Tales from the Crypt, the Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, and mm -hmm. the anthology format, right? the idea was if we raise the money to make this movie, rather than make the movie and run out of cash, which we had seen happen to other friends of ours, you have three quarters or something done. Yeah. If we did it in segments, at least you would have a hole to show people if we ran out of the cash before the production was that finished. That makes a lot of sense. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So we wrote, we each wrote us, Darren wrote a story. Uh, I wrote two stories. Uh, Jeff wrote a story. And I, I co-wrote one of the stories with my friend Mike Malone, who also was living with us. Uh -huh. And the idea was, of course, Jeff and his brother Bill were going to go to Dalton, Georgia, and raise the independent money to make the movie. May I and stop you there? Why Dalton, Georgia? Because yeah, that's Jeff and Bill were from. Okay. And since this was being done with a limited partnership, they said, hey, we'll go to my, you know, friends of my folks and, you uh -huh. know, business acquaintances and things like that. And that's how we would, we would get the movie made. And... We were very, very lucky about it because we were running around meeting people and everything else. So I knew Clue Gulliger. Uh, I'd introduced Jeff to him. So and Clue was just missed, always so supportive of young people trying to do things and what have you. So he was going to be on board immediately. Some people in his acting classes were on board. Uh, Jeff and I uh, drove down to Palm Springs to get Cameron Mitchell. Mm hmm. And we got him uh, and uh, uh, ended up uh, going to a party with him uh, that night in Palm Springs. That was fun. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, oh, Cameron, boy, he was a, he was a pistol. Why was then, that fun? Why You, you got to stop there. Well, you say it was horrible. Okay. <laughs> I'll take Cameron was staying in a condominium down in Palm Springs. And uh, so we go, we knock on, there he is. And he goes, no, this project sounds great. We barely got it out. And he goes, uh, do you guys have 500 bucks? So we're like, well, yeah, we can get 500 from the ATM. Okay, great. You want to go to a party? So we climb into Cameron's car. And I'm, I'm not kidding you. For some reason, on his front seat, there must have been 200 uh, Zippo lighters. So I'm sitting on a mountain of Zippo lighters in the front seat of Cameron Mitchell's car while he's kind of zigzagging down Frank Sinatra Boulevard in Palm Springs. And Jeff is in the back seat. And all I can think of is, you know, this instant inferno. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still with Cameron Mitchell, so that's cool, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but, of course, then the next day, we were told by his, his manager, who was a very, very nice lady, who said, no, Cameron really shouldn't agree to, to do anything for 500 So we got that all straightened out. But, uh, no, he was he was great. And he just was kind of, you know, an experiment. I just saw the other side of the wind. He has a great yeah. role in that. Well, you know, it, we were just, oddly, you should mention it, because Chad and I were having a conversation as we were getting everything ready about, I didn't know Netflix had dropped it and the documentary, this week, and I, I put it to my queue, and we're all fathers, and I have an 18-month-old, or a 16-month-old, which means I have no extra, this, my time between work is this, right, of getting it, so I haven't got to watch it yet, and we're and, excited. Uh, it's it. wonderful, and, but that's, you know, that was Cameron, he was, uh, you know, it was all these guys who were so lucky to meet these people yeah. who just were enthusiastic about doing things, and again, it was going to be done in little segments, and Jeff and I tracked down Angelo Rosito 
And uh, Harry Caesar, for example, Jeff and I met him at Robert Aldrich's memorial at the DGA. We s sat behind him. Yeah. <laughs> and then said, hey, do you want to be in our movie? Oh, uh, yeah, all right, I'll be in your movie. So the <laughs> there you go. That was how the whole thing When you tell together. that story from now on, go, yeah, I'll be in your movie. Uh, you got five hundred dollars. Combine. Yeah, was, just keep yeah. saying five hundred dollars, everybody. Then we met Vincent Price, and he's like, "Yeah, I'll be in your movie. You got five hundred dollars." Jeff was the one who really wanted Vincent Price. He was absolutely set on Vincent Price, and I, I didn't think it was possible. And I, we, and we were kind of going because you know everybody at that time were using guys like John Carradine and people like that right, who right, we right. had wanted at one point in the movie. And it was just a matter of, well, you know, is this just way above our pay grade and everything else? So uh, Jeff rode away to a little address service. We got Vincent Price's address up there on Swallow Drive, and we drove over there. Jeff and Darren and I drove over there. We knocked on his front door, and he opened the door for us. He was standing there, and uh, he had been baking bread. <laughs> well, that's that's not if you know anything about Vincent Price, that's not unusual, right? No, no, absolutely not. The house smelled fantastic. He was there. Coral Brown was in the kitchen. He's baking bread, and he he invites us in, and we go to the living room, and he listens to our pitch, and he he wasn't interested. He had done uh, that wonderful PBS series Mystery with Diana Rigg, and yeah. oh yeah, some yeah, things yeah, like yeah. that. And he felt he kind of, and he had just done the Monster Club, yep, and right. wasn't too happy with the way that had turned out. So he just, you know, thanked us, and but we got him to agree to look at uh, some of the finished stories before completely rejecting the idea of being in the wraparound. Right, absolutely. And he came and he saw the the stuff. He actually saw the Clue Gulliger episode, and uh, I think the Swamp, and uh, then agreed to do it. We shot it all down at uh, at Roger's studio. And in fact, oh, I'll tell you, you know, we were down at the Hammond Lumberyard. Roger came down. Uh, thanks to our publicist, who was David Delval, and uh, who was an old friend, and we thought, well, this would be great. So David got Roger and Hazel Court to come down to have kind of a mini reunion with Vincent on set. Uh huh. And we had built this like crumbling library set, you know, for Vincent and Susan Tyrell. And uh, I'm standing with Roger Corman, and he was looking around. And he says, uh, "You know, I think I've directed this movie about a hundred times." <laughs> And it's like, yes, I, I, we couldn't disagree. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. We've had several people on the show who have talked about the Lumberyard and just how bad it could be. And uh, Ed, who was it? Was it Mick Strawn? Mick Strawn, yeah. Mick Strawn. And, and Ole Sassoon. Product, yeah, Ole Sassoon, who directed the Fantastic Four movie that never was released. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. Oh, sure. And, well, you know, they had that back kind of, area where all the old two by fours used to be stacked up and the second floor completely collapsed down into the first floor and that's where all the editing equipment was right yeah it was yeah it was unbelievable and uh but he just you know you know roger but well, it worked for beast of a million eyes it'll certainly work again <laughs> well there you go yeah. by the way i just i just want to correct my friend joe who's obviously not keen on observation of course he knows Fantastic Four. He's got Doctor Doom, Galactus, I and Silver saw, Surfer in the background. I, <laughs> I said I meant if he was familiar 
with the movie with the that Rocky was not Horror. released. Yeah. Um, that documentary is great. Oh, that, it was. It was. It yep. was. And we had uh, Ole and Mick Strawn, who was a production designer on the show, uh, after, uh, right after the documentary, and it was it was a real coup for us. So, and we enjoyed having them on it. If you ever get a chance, check out that episode of Bonehead. So, oh, here again, I give you just my, my favorite Vincent Price moment, and from a whisper to a scream. Oh yeah. my God! Please, please, yeah. yes, tell me okay. to shut the hell up. So we were. You know, we were filming along, and uh, Larry Tierney was an old friend. He was in it, and Martin Beswick, and everybody. So it was, it was fine. And uh, Susan Tyrell, who was, she was great. She was, she was a real character. And Susu also was quite a talented artist, actually. And she wanted Vincent's opinion of her artwork, naturally, because he was such an aficionado and an expert. So. One day, and Vincent is coming out, we had a little uh, trailer for him, and he was coming out of his trailer, and I happened to be with him, and Susan Tyrells goes, oh, Vinny, I've, I've got all my artwork. Come take a look at it. And she had put it uh, on a, a craft service table and covered it with a sheet. So I'm standing with Vincent Price. Susan Tyrell pulls the sheet apart, and there, in front of you, you imagine that here's the visual, me, Vincent Price, and in front of me, about 20... Uh, let, let's just say uh, female genitalia molds. <laughs> oh, now hold on. Just to let you know, we usually we do, but you can say whatever you like on the show. So don't <laughs> oh, feel like yes. you have to edit uh, yourself. Yes, all these vaginas are lined up <laughs> and they have fists coming out of them and some have <laughs> eyes exploding out of them. And uh, it was why, but they were beautifully done. <laughs> but was, That's the most beautiful fisting I've ever saw. <laughs> it was incredible. And I'm standing with Vincent Price looking at this stuff, right? And he was a pretty old guy by that. And he had his hand on this shoulder and he's kind of leans down and he says, oh my, this woman's terribly disturbed. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's my favorite surprise moment. <laughs> Your impressions are just amazing so far. I don't know what, I mean, I know you wanted to be a writer, but you really should have went into just being an impressionist. I, you have nailed a couple of them, sir. Thank you very much. I don't know anyone who does a better Roger Corman than you do. I don't know if Roger Corman does, does a better, better Roger, Roger Corman. Corman than you do. Oh. Oh, thank you! My goodness. That's... No, it re and we've had several people who have done it for, it, and nobody yeah. does it quite no. like you do. No. So. Okay. Well, that's that, that's now. There's several other movies we'd like to talk about, and where oh. did, where did you go after the, uh, from uh, Whisper to a Scream? What was your next project? Well, everything was kind of happening simultaneously because Whisper took a long time to get finished. Right. And. Uh, we finally did, and the movie store bought us, and we ended up in theaters and all that stuff. And other friends of ours were starting to get their careers going. And a friend of mine named Mike Farkas, who I'd known from USC, uh, he was working for Irwin Yablons and Bruce Cone Curtis. And then Mike recommended me to Irwin Yablons and Bruce to write the movie Prison. So that happened while even Whisper to a Scream was being uh, cut. And so I went over there, and I met Rennie Harlan and all that, and that was how that happened. Yeah, and I was going to, that's Rennie Harlan's first American film, correct? Yeah. That's mm -hmm. the one he made right before Nightmare on Elm Street 4, correct? Correct, yep. I would think so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you talk about that experience? Oh, it was great. Uh, I, Irwin and Bruce were so good to me, and uh, I actually used the script that, uh, for, that I wrote for Jeff that we weren't able to get made as my writing sample, 
And they read it and they said, let's go. And of course I was cheap. Uh, but the thing was when Irwin was running Lormar, he had this idea of doing Halloween in a penitentiary. Now, for our audience, Erwin Yoblins was the, was the guy who did the first Halloween, who produced the first Halloween for everybody, right? Absolutely. He yep. was the one that set up the deal with Mustafa Akkad, and they brought in John Carpenter, and yada, yada, yada. I just, That's for, right. for, for, our, gave, for our John audience. and Deborah Hill, right. the, uh, the pitch, uh, the Babysitter Murders. That babysitter was, Murders, absolutely. That's right. And, of course, Erwin had also produced Assault on Precinct 13. Absolutely, yep. So, he had... When he was, uh, and he had been a big studio executive at Paramount, and of course his brother had been the head of production at Paramount and all that stuff. And uh, Irwin had, when he was at Lorimar, had had this project developed. And the thing was, he, they had a script, it was called Horror in the Big House. And I read this thing, and it was like the, the writer had taken the idea of Halloween in a penitentiary so literally that it was somebody walking around with a knife killing other inmates. Well, that happens every, you know, every five minutes. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, that's like, that's nothing. Yeah. So yeah. I came back and I talked about it with Rennie because we had just met. And I said, no, this has got to be Poltergeist goes to jail. This has to be a supernatural thing. They agreed. And so we got together. But um, originally the project was going to be independently financed and Bruce Cone Curtis and Irwin's company was was going to make it. Uh, the company they they split up. Or Bruce ended up with some properties. Irwin ended up. So it was kind of a long process uh, to finally land at uh, Empire Pictures, and uh, we made it with uh, with Charlie. Yeah. So that leads us to Full Moon. Yes. I don't. I don't. I don't want to skip stuff, but. I, we always ask our guests, and we've seemed to have had several, several guests who have worked with Charlie Band, Albert Band. Yeah, and, and full moon, full moon movies are a staple of of my upbringing. So, <laughs> huge fan. Fire away. Yes. What is your best Charlie Band story? Probably, I I will say this again. I I am one of the primarily unscathed and and, uh, and and just so the our audience knows before this we were doing a pre-interview and kind of talking beforehand and james and i met peter david several years ago and we were telling i was telling you about it and peter david always says to uh said to us that you know he was the one of the few people in hollywood who he didn't who mr band didn't owe money to and you said i am number two i also charlie doesn't owe me a nickel and uh one of the things when, you know, when all this was going on uh, with Full Moon and Roger and uh, TWE and all of these companies, they were all running on this enormous amount of money that was coming in from VHS sales. Right, right. So the need for product was just enormous. It was just one movie after another just going flying right out the door. So for guys like me, it was like there were just opportunities, frankly, everywhere because these things had to go onto video shelves. What was the average writing time for you on a script? About uh, probably about three and a half weeks or so, three and a half, four weeks. Yeah. That's pretty quick. That's pretty and quick. It was pretty quick, but it, you know, they had a very efficient Charlie's uh, soon to be wife. Debbie Dion was the story editor. She knew what she was doing. She was very good. And I loved Albert band. He was a great guy. And, you know, I would, but I, when I saw Albert, we would talk. I talked to him about the asphalt jungle. I didn't talk to him about Ghoulies too. Yeah. Which, <laughs> by know. the way, 
happens to be Chad, one of our, Chad and I, as far as, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's one of our favorite yeah. movies. Not uh, People talk about movie. Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> oh, no. Ghoulies 2. There you go. We're not going that far. It's not, but it is the Godfather 2 of the Ghoulies films, but that's beside <laughs> the point. That, yes. And it's, it but has you, Royal Dano in it. How can you not like it? Of course. And of course, now Royal, of course, had what is the other, the really big movie that Royal did with Albert Band? What? Albert Band wrote the screenplay to The Red Badge of Courage, starring Audie Murphy. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, I did not that know John, that. That John Huston directed. Right. Yep, he sure did. Yep, and Royal Dano is the ragged soldier. Wow. I, I need to go. Yeah. See, we forget things. We apologize. We completely apologize. Also, he's in House 2, which is also... Yes. The Godfather Part Two of House, House movies. movies. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. That's uh, so it's. But that was that was a thing that I always loved working on on these movies. Is I was always such a fanatic that I would know if the guys were doing B movies now. I knew they were doing other kinds of movies in 1960 or whatever it was. So <laughs> that's what I would talk to them about. And so it kind of it was fun. I always I lo I loved it. Did most of did any of them get aggravated with you, or is it really just more of an appreciation, and they just love that they yet you knew their work? Well, if they were if they got aggravated, they were certainly private about it. Everybody was very <laughs> oh, nice. good, 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 good. So we got off a little track. So back to your Charlie Band. What's your best Charlie Band story? Okay. Uh, well, here's one that really goes to the core truth of things. Uh, I was buy, I was trying to buy a new car, and I had a payment coming from Charlie, and the, the I got the check and I went to the bank and the check was, you know, they couldn't honor it. So I called Charlie and I said, Charlie, you know, this uh, this check you gave me, uh, they're not honoring it. I was pretty upset because I wanted to get the car that day. And I hear this kind of laughter from the vice president of the company. And they said, Courtney, our checks are not to be cashed. They're to be deposited. <laughs> 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 so they because of course what they were doing and they weren't the only movie company to do this is uh you know they keep zero balances in their accounts so that they don't get it attached for taxes right oh yep so you know the checks always go through but you have to go through kind of the obstacle course to get to that point yes Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah, that that was a that was a bit of a learning curve there, but you know we and and just to go, how nervous does that make one knowing that I'll eventually get this money, but I need a new car because I have nothing to drive today. <laughs> yes, well that was yeah that was a bit of a problem. Uh, it, it was always I, the thing was it was never consistent. Uh, sometimes Charlie would, I remember once I, he asked me to do something. It was kind of like a supervisory thing. And he said, how much would, would he take you to over talk to these writers and everything else? I quoted him some, I don't know, it was a couple of thousand dollars. I forget what I told him. And, uh, he said, okay. And I just, just for fun, I said, Charlie, I want it in cash. He gave me the envelope like an hour later. Right. Wow. Yeah. So that was one example, and then there was the flip side. So, yeah, it was always <laughs> whatever. But that was also, but, you know, that was kind of, it wasn't that unusual. I mean, maybe uh, at least back in the Empire days, uh, it was a little more 
close to the bone because however the company was doing always reflected back on how you ended up getting paid. Basically, that was it. There was always, you know, they're either, you know, cash steep or, you know, cash poor. Right. So let me ask you a question about writing for movies for Mm -hmm. like, like, for example, like puppet master three or, um, Mm -hmm. or, well, and we're going to get into Dr. Mordrew. We got to talk about Dr. Mordrew. But when you write these screenplays for movies that are on a very, very limited budget, like, do you go in writing knowing that the budget's going to be that limited, or do you do you write your script and then do you have to, like, narrow it down based on the budget? Well, it kind of went both ways. I mean, certainly I had done enough of this stuff that you're always kind of aware of what the production situation was going to be. Uh, Puppet Master 3 was kind of a different thing because... I had been away from Full Moon for for quite a while, and I'd written a movie called The Class of 1999. With Mark L. Lester, who we're going to talk about, because you worked with that man a lot. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes, I was. And so, and, you know, the movies we were doing were all playing in movie theaters, and this was, and so when Charlie, uh, I ran into Charlie by accident, we started talking about me doing some things, and I told him I wanted to direct. So he made me an offer to do three movies, of one of which I would direct. Uh-huh. So, of course, that was... And in those days, you know, the money wasn't bad at all. So I said, great. And Puppet Master 3, he said he wanted to do a prequel to the first movie. Right. Uh-huh. And that it was going to be a period piece. Well, he knew that would just, you know, totally get me going. And so I got with Dave Dakota, who was an old friend. I knew David was going to direct it. And that's when I said, let's make this the where eagles dare of Puppet Master movies with right. <laughs> our little extremely limited framework. But the thing was, the, the film, they kind of let you go because David Allen was under contract then and everything else. And, you know, these movies were being financed by Paramount. We heard that. And the, always the story was Paramount gave maybe more money than maybe went into the budget that was true. Charlie got it got in a little little problem there, but th- at this point, whatever money they were giving, in fact, was being spent. Right. So we got. I was very lucky with that. And the thing was, Puppet Master Three was going to be one of the movies shot in Romania because uh-huh. Ted Nicolau had been over there doing, uh, I guess, um, not, not Netherworld. Uh, subspecies, maybe. Subspecies, right? The very first subspecies. So. Uh, whatever happened, we we couldn't go to Romania. We were stuck. So we had this World War II thing in Germany and all the rest of this stuff. Where in the world are we going to shoot it? And Dave Dakota and John Schuweiler made the deal for us to shoot at Universal. So that was that was just great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, oh, we were just having a ball because, you know, I mean, I'm running around going, oh, my God, you know, Lon Chaney Jr., you know, here from the Ghost uh-huh. of Frankenstein, <laughs> Night Monster and the Mad Ghoul and everything. You know, I was going crazy. But uh, it was it was wonderful. And for a low-budget movie to have that access to the, particularly those sets with that great history, but we were there for days. And uh, But that was because David was able to make a deal. They were shooting a movie called Newsies. Uh-huh. Oh yes. And they were on the on the adjoining street, but they were shooting at night. And they kind of wanted a production opposite them during the day, if nothing else, just to kind of keep, you know, the flow going and not, you know, have any everything uh, interrupted. They don't have to worry about security personnel. 
So that's how we got in. So like, there's always these cool little ways to make your no money and everything else work. And that was a, that was a great example of it. I, I love I that was really a, a great fun thing. And Charlie let me, you know, go nuts and do all of our, uh, you know, stuff with the puppets. And on that particular movie, there's almost no stock footage from the other uh, Puppet Master films. In right. It. right. Yeah, it was it was all brand new stuff. So that was great, too. Yeah, that, that is. That's, I, I've often, I, I remember it. I remember it. And, I often, and now that I'm thinking back, yes, you're right. It, it does look yeah, the, much better than all the other ones. And that makes yeah. complete sense. You're able to use other sets. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, Absolutely. sorry. So you're, you knew sometimes the budget, sometimes you didn't know the budget. Did you always want to be a director? Or did you always want to be a writer? Or did you want to be a writer-director? What was your passion? When you went to film school, what did you want to do? I know you have... You've written a lot, and we'll get to your novels in a few minutes, but I know you've written some westerns. So what did, oh, yeah. you, what did you want to make? Well, I really, I, I, I really wanted to, to direct. Uh, and the thing was that at least at that time, the, the, the quickest way, certainly within the B-movie world, was to become valuable or at least, you know, useful as a writer. And then you get your opportunity to direct a movie you know, as you're going along within the company. And that was also the other thing, too, at least at that time, uh, there was always a, a case of a, attrition. I, I just did a thing very recently with Kat Shea. We did a commentary on a movie that she had, that she directed, actually it was Poison Ivy. Uh -huh. And we talked about that very thing that, you know, here she was an actress who then starts directing, and then, you know, you just worked your way up the ladder. And it was possible because there was continuity with these B companies because once you were inside the walls, yes. they, they would use you like crazy. And yeah. just so you were just part of the machinery that was making product. And eventually they go, well, what the hell? He's not going to screw it up any worse than anybody else. And they, <laughs> they, yeah. Go ahead, James. Well, I, and I may be jumping around a little bit, but you obviously worked on, uh, we talked about the film, we're going to talk about the novels, but you also did some work on video games involving things like the Rolling Stones um, yes, yeah. And, and Super Spy and things like that. How did you get involved in video games as well? Was it through kind of the same companies? Was it... No, that came from... that. Well, that has a bit of an Empire connection. Uh, Chelsea Field, who was in the movie Prison, uh, was became a very, very good friend of mine. And her then-husband was a drummer named Rick Murata, who was a very big-time session drummer. He's the, he's the drummer on Werewolves of London. Oh, oh really? Okay, really? okay. Yes. okay. And Rick knew, first of all, of course, he knew the Rolling Stones, but he knew who the producer of this CD-ROM. And in fact, I've got it. It's got it. It's right there. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were looking for someone to script. They wanted to do this thing with Voodoo Lounge about Baron Samity and all this type of stuff. Mm -hmm. So they wanted someone actually to kind of fill in between, uh, I guess, essentially like the gameplay to get to the music bits and everything else. And I had to write up a couple of uh, sample pages for Mick Jagger to approve, which he did. And then the next thing I know, we actually did all that stuff in uh, Minneapolis. Really? That was the dog leg of the Voodoo Lounge tour. And yeah, the next thing I knew, I was there in a studio in a green screen with the Rolling Stones. So uh, once again, earlier when we said James was the huge Vincent Price fan, I'm the Rolling Stones fan. 
Um, That's why I had to bring it up. I know, I like, and I was, my friends and prize I was going. I was going. He to prefers get, the monkeys. Don't believe him. Yeah, <laughs> bullshit. Monkeys are cool too. Yeah, yeah. Monkeys are cool, but I'm. I you know I saw the Rolling Stones a few years ago at Churchill Downs, and oh, it was one of my bucket list things. Alice Cooper, by the way, opened up for him. I can't think of a better lineup. There you go. But um, yeah, can you talk about that just for a second? Of getting to hang out with Rolling Stones. Did you oh, do? This, did you do heroin with Keith? <laughs> this, this is the thing. I Before, would. <laughs> when they said, okay, you're going to go ahead and do this, and we're all going to have to go and deal with the band and everything, uh, I still have it around here somewhere, that there was this, this whole kind of catalog of behavior that they expected you to adhere oh, to. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. do not look Keith Richards in the eye. Do not ask. You know, all this kind of weird stuff. So I was absolutely terrified. And when we got there... Uh, Green Day was opening for them uh, <laughs> on that tour. That's great. That's also so, another, yeah. You know, I, you get my your all-access pass. I mean, this is like, you know, my God, I've never been around, you know, certainly not, you know, the ultimate level of rock and roll to, to see this. And behind the scenes, Mick Jagger was very businesslike. He was very nice. He was fine. All these weird, oh, they're so hypersensitive about, could, no, uh-uh. Never saw it. Not at all. I didn't really uh, get that close to Keith Richards. I don't know that he was that interested in doing this, but he did it. Ron Wood was a god. He was so great. Oh, really? He was so, so fantastic to me. And we we actually ended up doing a private session together, and he wrote recorded a whole bunch of additional dialogue for the CD-ROM to fill in the spots that we needed to, to cover. He was great. And this was the thing. This is what got it. First of all, he's like a total horror movie nut. Yeah. So he's all into the video nasties. And he actually had a copy of Prison. So we got, he was so cool. And I asked him about being in the Deadly Bees. And that really took him back. <laughs> yeah. He's in the band in the opening of that movie. Really? Uh, I don't know that I knew Zana that. Lee sings that horrible song. It's yeah. been a long time, but yeah. yeah. And she faints. Throw on the Blu-ray and you'll see. There he is. Was he in the, uh, he was in, was that while he was in, is it The Faces? Before he was in the Rolling Stones? I, yes. This you had know what I'm be, talking about, right? Because he kind of created a band for the movie. Right, but at that time, I wonder if he was in the band Faces. I or, think he was, yes. You know, yeah, I, I, yeah, I absolutely. thought you know what I was talking about, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, when he just, he and, uh, you know, Rod Stewart looked so much alike, you right. couldn't tell. Yeah. And, yeah, it was that definitely that period. Absolutely. I know exactly what you're talking about. That is so cool. Well, So he was a fan of yours. That's kind of well, amazing. I mean, he was a fan of, of these movies, and he was very interested in this kind of technology. And everybody was kind of, well, is CD-ROM going to catch on? Of course, it didn't. Yeah. But uh, the idea of the interactive with the video and all of that stuff, I mean, he really was intrigued by all that. I will say this. I was given. I was married at the time. I didn't take advantage of it. I had, They gave me a very beautiful young assistant. And Ron Wood, like, decided he was my wingman. <laughs> so he, no, this is true. So he's really giving me the big build. I was like, oh, my God. I mean, where the hell is that gonna ever going to happen, you know? <laughs> but she was, she was very, very nice. But this was the thing. Charlie Watts goes walking by us in the hallway, and she goes, wow, who's that old man? She had absolutely no clue. And, you know, 
and he was very, oh, he was very nice. Of course, he's very kind of, you know, but again, when I came back and I was just raving about this wonderful experience, a friend of mine really put it in perspective. He goes, you know, Courtney, it's kind of hard to throw a color TV out of a hotel room window when you can't pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I met the Rolling Stones as grandparents, not, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah. That is a great story that you will take <laughs> with you to the grave, sir. That, yes. that, that's, yeah. that's, that's what, yes. I. Oh, and then that big, uh, uh, you know, Encyclopedia of the Rolling Stones, that big, thick, white one. Uh -huh. You go to the index, you look at it, and there's my name right in there. So that's my, that's my footnote. Oh, my God. Wasn't that a hilarious Roger Corman? Actually, it really was. He does, a de he yeah, does, he does Corman better than Corman does Corman. Yeah. Thank you so much. We ended with the Rolling Stones, which is amazing because, as you all know, listen to the show. That's my favorite band. Next week, we're going to talk about not only some of his Western novels, but how that industry works. We're going to talk about board game design. Yep. And he has a couple more impersonations, and one of them may be the Shat. <laughs> That's Bill Shatner. William Shatner to his friends. We also have a kitty. And as you can see, I had surgery. So we're later going to do Patreon. If you give enough money, you'll be able to see the holes. For more money, you know what you can do with the holes. First we buy Cheetos. Then we destroy the world. <laughs> Tune in next week for a second part with Courtney. He's a, probably one of our favorite guests that we've had on. So many great stories. Thank you. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe on M. Subscribe on SoundCloud, I almost said Instagram, iTunes, and YouTube. Thank you so much. And share on your social media, which would be Instagrams to Snapchats. And uh, for you all out there, Grinder, you know who you are. So this is the closing? That could probably sound more redneck. <laughs> all right. Do you think overalls were created to completely fix plumber's crack? That's what I think. Courtney. Ah, uh, you know I'm right. Thank <laughs> you so much. If you love that, specifically we just ended on the Rolling Stones, and for you people who watch Boneheads, you should know the Rolling Stones are my favorite band. So Hey, you're so not wearing the new shirt. You're not wearing the same shirt. When did when that happen? <laughs> I went to work and came back. Oh. You guys are still talking. Dang. I know, right? Oh, have you all noticed? I haven't been wearing the... I haven't worn the show shirt. Nope, I sorry. would explain why, but... No one cares. It, that, and it's a mystery. So, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much, Courtney. Next episode, he's going to delve into... I forgot. <laughs> we'll start again. And a beautiful Shatner impression. And a beautiful... That's the end of the second one. Oh, what is the other impersonation he did? He did Roger like Corman. Corman. Okay, cool. I got it. And go. Man, that was a crap. What? <laughs> Just go with it. Just go with it. Wasn't that a great Roger Moore impression? <laughs> My, Roger Moore. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Let's start again. <laughs> what oh. the fuck is his last name? It's Roger Moore. Corman. Corman. It took you a second. No, I had no idea what was going on. You ready?